Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have the last, I think, person in the series uh, to be a co-author on a book I'm putting together called Understanding Viruses, uh, James Shapiro. He's been a guest several times before. Very, very smart guy. He's got amazing insights. He's part of the uh, Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at University of Chicago. He's also part of a website called The Third Way of Evolution. Uh, there's many researchers and scientists on that site that talk about uh, you know, what they call a third way of evolution. That's apart from, I guess, the neo-Darwinist dogma. And separate from intelligent design as well. Oh, okay. That's the third way, right? Yeah, neo-Darwinism on one hand, intelligent design on the other, but this is the third way. That's a good, right. that's excellent. Thank you. Well, yeah, so uh, we'll get right into it. James, again, thanks for coming and being part of this book. So uh, if you're ready, we'll begin with the questions. Sure. Okay. Fire. Yeah, so first one, you know, it's kind of an easy one, maybe. Uh, to your knowledge, do all forms of life uh, have associated viruses with them, or are there some that don't seem to? I think they all do. We know about bacteria, we know about archaea, we know about plants and animals, and uh, we know about some unicellular eukaryotes. So I think viruses are pretty much everywhere. Yeah, amazing. And there's, there's even viruses that prey upon other viruses too. So they literally uh, are omnipresent, it seems like. Yes, with the giant viruses that infect amoebae, they have these uh, small viruses that use the, the, the replication factories the big viruses set up in amoebal cells. Hmm, very interesting. Um, is there any uh, type of viral infection that you think is, is uh, I don't know, just really surprising or unusual to you? One that you think about? Well, I, th- I think the things that viruses can do for their hosts sometimes are surprising. Oh, you mean beneficial things instead of just uh, killing them? Right. I mean, the typical view, I think I've said this before on, on your podcast, is that viruses are just parasites whose only... Uh, uh, role is to, to uh, kill the cells that they infect. But in fact, many viruses don't, uh, are uh, carried along by cells as they live and can even contribute to the cells that they infect. Yeah, I mean, our, you know, we're living proof that viruses are also symbionts because I guess about 8% of our DNA is viral DNA. And for instance, I learned, you know, we, we couldn't make a, a placenta and keep our babies safe and separate from the mother's immune system without some viral uh, DNA, right? Right. In mammals, the endogenous retroviruses have wired uh, the placenta and also stem cell development. And um, they've played a very important role in in our evolution. And there's something very interesting about the way they've uh, handled the placenta, because as you look at different orders of mammals, they all have placenta and embryos inside them. They're all viviparous, like we are. But the retroviruses which wire the placenta are unique for each order of mammal, plus which Hmm. the the placenta uses a protein. They do two things for for the placenta. One is that they provide signals to allow expression of placental-specific functions. And secondly, 
the protein that the retrovirus uses to attach and invade mammalian cells, which is called the ENVER, envelope protein, mm. uh, serves to, to allow the placenta to form a syncytial, uh, what's called a syncytial blastoderm, where the, their cell walls are, are not there. And the envelope protein is called a syncytin. And again, each order of mammal has its own envelope proteins that it uses as syncytins. It looks almost as though placental development had evolved over and over again in, in the history of mammalian evolution. It's certainly not the pattern we wow. would expect based upon conventional evolutionary thinking, where you have a, a new invention once and then you branch off from that. And I think-, I think Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, don't, I don't know what it means exactly, but I think it's an interesting observation and I hope somebody uh, does more research on it and finally figures out what's going on. Well, one part of that is so, when a virus, um, at what point does it lose its sense of self, its agency? You know, if we have a virus that uh, endogenizes into our DNA, you know, HIV seems to retain its its ability to make more HIV and, you know, do what it pleases. But some of our past endogenized retroviruses, they seem to have lost the ability to, to leave our DNA. And at what point are they part of us and they, they don't have a separate agency anymore? Well, there are people who think that HIV is on a path to becoming part of the human genome eventually. It, when you first encounter a virus, it can be much more dangerous than it is after some period of, of uh, familiarity with it. You use this term sense of, of, of itself and so forth, or independence. I think of viruses as just part of the whole uh, biosphere, the, the living world. And they go into cells and they come out of cells and they can communicate between cells and they can sometimes affect other properties of the cells. And we'll talk about that uh, shortly. It's a little bit strange to talk about a virus as having uh, identity or a sense of itself. It's like saying that certain molecules mm. in the cell have an identity or a sense of itself. Well, the, yeah, this, right, this leads into my question I was going to ask you, but I, didn't, you know, I, I did it out of order. Do you believe viruses are alive? And if so, or if not, what characteristics of a living thing do they have or not have in your estimation? Well, they're part of life, but they're not capable of, of reproducing on their own. They always have to infect a cell in order to reproduce. So uh, if you're defin one definition of life is the ability to grow and reproduce. And by that definition, viruses are not alive. Nonetheless, uh, they seem to be all over the place, as you said at the beginning. And I think that they've turned out to be extremely valuable to uh, all kinds of living cells for their evolution. And evolution is essential to life. So uh, that's one of the ways that viruses are part of life. So why, why do you think that some viruses, uh, besides they can, they have the ability, why do some endogenize? Why do some become latent or lysogenic? And then why do, you know, why do they have these different, I guess I'll call them behaviors? You know, and why, why could herpes, for instance, infect someone, be dormant for years or decades, and then you know, sense its conditions around it and then uh, turn into a, you know, go into a lytic phase? Well, I think a lot of this is a historical accident. It's just where you are in, in the, the long-term cycle of the interaction between the virus and its, uh, its host. And I think we, we know about just about every possible combination of situations from viruses, which always seem to replicate and, and destroy the host cell uh, to viruses, which, uh, are sort of obligatory integrators into the genome and go silent. 
and uh, there's everything in between. So I think a lot of the peculiarities we see are because we've, we've had a, a very limited idea of what a virus is. And once we have a more complete view of viruses, uh, I think we'll just see that it's part of the complexity of the virus interaction with its hosts. So a question along those lines is why would, uh, why, why is there a latency period and why is it variable? You know, some viruses that get, I'll get sick pretty quickly. Some will take maybe days, weeks, months, some could be years. What, what would govern that latency period besides, you know, uh, exponential replication of the virus and there being quote unquote enough to infect me? Well, I think in some cases, infection occurs, but viral reproduction doesn't always occur. And uh, it may take some other kind of event, some another infection or some stressor to activate the, the virus. And we have examples where that happens. For example, the viruses that infect bacteria and become part of their genome are called uh, temperate or lysogenic bacteriophages. They can sit in the genome of organisms for, for many, many uh, generations. But if the cells are irradiated and their DNA is damaged, then the virus is activated and comes out. That makes sense from the virus point of view. It may make sense from the cell's point of view too. Occasionally when those viruses come out, they pick up pieces of the bacterial chromosome and they can carry them to other cells. That's certainly how one of the major tools I've used in my early research. I think it, it illustrates the, the, the sort of symbiotic nature of, of the relationship between the virus and its host. I think we also discussed in, a, in an earlier podcast about bacteria which cause disease. And in most cases that I know of, the bacteria that cause disease and produce toxins do that because they have a virus integrated into their genome. And it's the virus which has the sequences for encoding the toxin. The toxin is useful to the bacteria because it prevents the bacteria from being eaten up by uh, other kinds of uh, eukaryotic organisms like amoebae. But when bacteria gets in the wrong uh, place and infects the human body, the toxin can act against the cells in the body. And that way the, the virus is allowing the bacteria to become pathogenic. And that was discovered, I'm not sure how long ago, at least, at least 70 years ago. And it's called lysogenic conversion, which means the lysogenic means that the bacteria is integrated into the genome of its host cell. And uh, as I said, then it can it come, come out when the cell is damaged or, or uh, stressed. Um, but the, uh, it can, many of the sequences in the virus, like these toxin sequences, can be expressed even when the rest of the virus is not functioning. What would be driving that behavior? Would it be the bacteria recruiting you know, viral material for its own ends? Or would it be the virus monitoring conditions and then making its own, you know, again, I'm anthropomorphizing, but, you know, who is the tool and who is the user of the tool? It seems like when it comes to viruses, that viruses use cells as tools, but yet they are used as tools, like you just talked about with bacteria. Yeah. I, I How is that decision made? I think anthropomorphizing can be useful in science, but sometimes it, it restricts the way we look at things. And I think if we look at the virus cell interaction as part of a, a, a complicated system, and it's the system as a whole which is operating, then some of these interactions make more sense because they allow the system as a whole to develop in certain ways. But in order to use, a, you know, again, if a, how would a system know 
I mean, something's got to know. Something's got to deliberately use this viral material because it's happened countless times. So there must be a way of identifying, okay, uh, the circumstances are right, whereby, oh, this is viral material, let's use it and uh, change ourselves so that we can accomplish what we need to accomplish. Well, I'm not sure that kind of thinking goes on too much among bacteria, but viruses do carry DNA that it proves very useful to bacteria. And so there, it, doesn't, it wouldn't be in, in the bacteria's interest, for example, to exclude all viruses, because then they wouldn't be able to take advantage of the, the DNA coming from the viruses. I don't know that these are conscious decisions, but I think this is the way the system evolves most efficiently. Okay. You mentioned this earlier, you alluded to it. I don't know if the time scale is right. If I get a certain virus and I'm the first one to get it, you know, you label me number one, mm-hmm. and then I, you know, I cough all over you and I give it to you, you're number two, and so on. And it, keeps, it keeps passaging and we get to like person number 100. How do you think the virus would be different in person number 100 versus me, the original person number one? So many factors which come into play. One is the inherent ability of, of the virus to change its genome as it replicates and reproduces. Some do this by making small changes, but there was a very interesting paper published earlier this year about influenza virus, which uh, formed a hybrid protein with, with a human sequence, and it gave the influenza virus a, a new way of infecting the cells. So and viruses can recombine with each other. That is, the same cells infected by two different viruses, but they may be similar to each other. And they can produce viruses which are hybrids between the two or recombinants between the two infecting viruses. So there are lots of ways that viruses change. If the, if the combination is either more infective or uh, more beneficial to certain hosts, that will favor the, the virus reproduction. It's the opposite, and, and the combination is less efficient or doesn't do anything for the host, then the virus can disappear. So they know there's no one place that they all go to. They all do different things. You know, some will, again, if they have the ability endogenize, some will stay just, you know, completely deadly and lytic forever. It seems like some will go towards more of a, like a commensal relationship. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I, I think you hinted at earlier when we talked about the placenta <laughs> and the endogenous retroviruses, I think this fits very well with the hollow biont conception of, of evolutionary change, which is that a large organism like a human being is not just the, the, the human cells, but is also can, all the microbial cells that are in the body. And that's what's called a hollow biont. And uh, our properties are, are conditioned by the microorganisms we have living on us and in us. And we can think of the viruses, which have become part of our genome, as hollow biont elements as well. And that's why I'm saying we should take a more systemic view of these things. There were all mosaics and amalgams of different aspects of, of life. And we can't try and reduce uh, what happens in life to, to some simple formula that's good for every form of life, because variety is an inherent aspect of the living world. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. If you like this podcast, Please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. If you know, if I shrunk you down to the size of a of a bacteria and put you in my gut, how would you navigate? Like, how do the bacteria there and the viruses, you know, function reliably? Like, you know, how could I have a a stable gut microbiome for years and years? In some cases, you know, the it seems like uh, it's just like a milieu of of all kinds of stuff going on, like a storm of craziness. Like, how could a bacteria? navigate all this? How could, a, uh, how could places find their targets and 
make the uh, you know make the nutrition that they uh, you know for you know how could a bacteria for instance uh, say okay hmm, I need some sugar molecules and I know where to get it so I'm going to take up residence here and then produce other metabolites that other bacteria could use or other cells could use like how could they live successfully in a community like this without some degree of intelligence wow well that's a big question the, the viruses or the, or the bacteria excuse me they're, they're li- live in organisms where they can find food and, and other nutrients to be able to sustain themselves but in the process they they produce chemicals which can be used by other components of the uh, intestine, let's say it's the intestine, and can feed them, or they can influence the uh, host organism. So it's a combination of things, and it depends a little bit on what the diet is of the uh, human in which the the bacterium lives. And people in Japan have different microbiomes than people in the United States, or people in in England, for example. The microbiome can change over time and can contribute to disease states and I think people are beginning to try and tease that out in more detail so that they can use their analysis of the bacteria that live within us, both as diagnostic tools to show when something is going wrong or as treatments to uh, repair defects when they appear. Yeah, I mean, I'll take another example from bacteria. Bacteria can do quorum sensing. Do you think viruses can do that? You know, let's, maybe that's part of the latency period. You know, a virus infects cells. Maybe it's able to use the cellular machinery to send out extracellular vesicles and, and count how many other infected cells are nearby in the same tissue. Is there enough? Okay, now let's let's go lytic. You know, let's start uh, multiplying and blowing cells open. Well, it, it turns out uh, I gave you the example of UV irradiation because that was what people used back in the 50s and 60s when I started doing genetics. I recently published a paper on cognitive cognition among bacteria and single-celled archaea as well. And one of the things I discovered while I was doing the research for that was that the quorum sensing, the sending of signals between cells and creating positive feedback loops so they can detect how dense the population is, uh, that can be involved in activating virus reproduction. So uh, Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a sensing. Yeah, the virus would have to have maybe some, you know, when it's inside a cell, some kind of they would use maybe the cell sensory apparatus to monitor the host condition. Well, uh, yeah, it's part of the integration of the virus and the, and the host cell. Yeah, I've heard some people postulate, I don't know what you'd call it, I guess a new form of life, but the virus cell combination is now essentially its own life form. Well, that's what happens Have you heard anything? Uh, with this uh, property of lysogenic conversion among the bacteria that I was speaking of, a bacterium without uh, the right viral sequence in its genome is unable to defend itself and unable to cause disease. When it acquires the, the, the viral genome, all of a sudden now it can defend itself and it can produce disease, which means another place for, for it to be able to reproduce. So there are different components of, of, a, of a living system. I think the best way to think about this in the way that I'm trying to focus on right now is not as each part of the system having its own ends, but as being components of, a, of a, a larger whole, which develops in certain ways. Well, there has to be some guiding aspect to the, you know, at some level, you can say, all right, they're part of a, a system of a, of a greater whole, but why would any part of the system or the whole system itself act in such a way as to allow for this and to, perpet- to perpetuate it? You know, at some level, there has to be some, some agency, some driving force. 
why why does uh, the integration take away agency? Well, I'm saying no. I'm I'm saying maybe there is agency at almost every level. I'm not saying there's a, it, does, it takes it away, but um, you know, I think that's right. Like, how far down does agency go? I mean, I, I would think most people would say maybe down to a cell level, or a lot of people would. But what about a subcellular level? You know, if if let's say viruses are you know some are composed of RNA or DNA, when they enter a cell, that's all that's left of them. There's no envelope protein or anything, but just a string of nucleotides. Then why couldn't you consider mRNAs or other RNAs or DNA inside of a cell as a, maybe a separate? It has its own agency apart that from the cell. Maybe the cell is a collection of of other creatures that all work towards the uh, the system being the cell, but they, you know, they actually have some of their own agency somehow. Well, people like to do that kind of reductionist thinking. That's the idea of the selfish gene, but I think that's completely the wrong way to look at it. It's trying to reduce to the something at the at the base of the system is what determines its properties, and we know that in all of these systems, properties of, of the whole system are very important. The, for example, the, meta, the nutritional interactions between the different microorganisms in our intestines and our cells, for that matter, because they help us to digest our food. Those are all interactive, and they're they're mutually beneficial. It's also true that complex interconnected systems are far more stable and flexible than simple, uh, single-minded, if you will, systems, which only can do a certain one particular routine, such as infect and kill. Uh, it's much better to have be flexible and have options, and the system can uh, adjust to the options according to the conditions. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I know systems have many, many emergent properties. I mean, it happens at all levels, so... I just yeah. wondered how far down does the uh, does independence and agency go? And I guess no one knows. I think when you start taking the cells apart and looking at the components, uh, it's very hard to talk about agency because they can't do any, the components can't do anything on their own. They have to be part of, of a living cell. Yeah, I mean, like you know, extracellular vesicles. You know, cells produce them and they mm -hmm. also move around and then they enter into other cells and they can change function of the cell. I guess no one would say that they're living; they're just tools, but. Uh, Right, they're way so I don't know how different with each other. But if you look at it, how different are they from viruses? I mean, viruses are kind of similar. You know, they're an enveloped bit of uh, nucleotides that can enter into a cell and come out of other cells and change that cell's action. They seem to have a bit more ability than, than extracellular vesicles, but they seem to be pretty similar, or like a bacterial plasmid. You know. Well, all of those I think are are, are signs of the ability of, of living systems to communicate with each other and to modify themselves and to change when change is advantageous. Yeah, it's just weird that they're all tools, but tools seem to have owners. So, you know, plasmids, you'd say they have bacterial owners or creators. EVs, you know, cell owners or creators, but who owns or creates the viruses? It's weird. They don't seem to have owners. They seem to be these, these, these tools that, uh, you know, they don't seem to have any, uh, again, any owners or creators. It's weird. I, again, I think owners perhaps a misleading anthropomorphism because once the cell sheds its vesicles, they're not part of the cell anymore. And the cell has very little control over them. The, the organism as a whole or other cells can pick up those vesicles and perhaps do useful things with them. So I, I think what, what I'm, I'm trying to emphasize is that communication by a whole series of different mechanisms that we never thought existed is possible. And it's transformed the way we think about uh, genetics and evolution 
and uh, ordinary physiology and development. Because before we knew about micro, microvesicles, we didn't know that cells could communicate in that fashion. Right. Yet these vesicles are, are essential, for example, for, for sperm to be able to fertilize uh, an egg in, in mice. If you block a male mouse from transferring certain RNAs from its, uh, into the sperm, and that sperm goes on to fertilize uh, a mouse egg, the egg can't develop properly. Huh, interesting. So that, that's an example of this kind of communication being very important for the reproductive cycle of the large organism, but it's based upon a property of different cells, the sperm on the one hand and the, the cells that produce the vesicles on the other. Yeah, interesting. Going in a little bit different direction here, and I know there's no one answer, but just asking the questions. So if, if there's a certain virus and um, someone has it and they're like incredibly sick, you know, they're like on death's door and I get it from them, how sick would I become? versus someone that has the same virus, but for some reason they barely feel anything and they're asymptomatic and I get it from them. You know, in those two circumstances, how, how would either affect me? What would be your guess and why? That depends. I think what we see in the COVID pandemic right now is that the same virus infects certain people and they don't have any symptoms, but they can then transmit the virus to other people who can get very sick and even die from it. Mostly uh, dependent uh, on two things, I, I, I think. One is the genetic constitution of the virus, which stays fairly stable. It can change uh, slightly, and it has changed slightly during the pandemic. But the other is the volume of a virus, which is transferred from one person to another. Uh, that can have a, a big influence on, on the outcome. And the third thing, of course, is the, the, the state of health of the person receiving the virus. One thing I've thought about viruses that's unusual is, you know, there's, I don't know, countless numbers of them, and I guess countless creatures have been infected over time, you know, over all evolutionary time. But, you know, every, everyone seems to say that uh, viruses are, you know, they're not alive and they're inert. They're just, or they're, they're passive, they're floating around. So if a virus is so small, you know, let's say 50 to 100 nanometers, and some hosts are so big, you know, microns, even to meters for us, how do these viruses find their targets so reliably so many times over evolutionary history? Well, there are a lot of them. They're the most abundant form of life on, form of uh, biological material on Earth. I almost said form of life. Mm. But I, I wanted to be careful about not saying that. But uh, and I'm trying to remember if the amount of DNA contained in all the viruses on the planet is more than the DNA in all the cells. And I'm not sure about that. But it's a, it's a huge amount, and there's huge numbers of viruses present all over the, the biosphere. And the, just by, by the numbers, encounters will occur. And in other cases, uh, just like the example you gave of person-to-person transmission of an infectious virus like COVID, the connection with the, with the social behavior of the larger organism can play a very important role in transmission. In fact, it does. That's the, the reason we're still having so much trouble with the uh, COVID viruses. We haven't uh, cut the person-to-person -person transmission enough. Do you think that even though a virus is tiny in a vast expanse of possible uh, hosts and they have to find the right cell type, the right receptor, which is you know a target that may be, I don't know, 20 nanometers wide in this huge expanse that they still, just because of the vast numbers, they're still able to do it so reliably? Well, again, that, that seems to be the, the, the thing with large numbers of, of viruses. If you have enough, enough of them, 
Some of them will find their targets or their receptors on the, uh, on the host and uh, cause an infection. And some of them are better than others. So COVID is a particularly uh, successful and very infective virus. I don't know if that's because it's produced in tremendous numbers or because it has higher affinity for uh, the tissues in the body. I have read that COVID can use different receptors, uh, at least two different receptors to, to get into human cells. So that may be uh, part of it as well. But I think the connection with, with humans and human behavior is the most important feature, certainly from a medical point of view, of, of uh, coronavirus infection. Well, very good. Um, I don't know if this is, you know, how far this extends, but it seems like at least with some viruses, you know, the tropism, the type of tissue that it affects is also turned around and repurposed to spread it. It seems like there's a matching, you know, for instance, uh, you know, cough or cold or flu, it affects my respiratory cells and those same cells cause me cough and spread it in that way. Sexually transmitted diseases may not cause their their host to you know want to engage in promiscuity, but it just seems like in some cases, like rabies as well, there's this matching of uh, tropism to uh, method of spread. Do well, you see you, that, or you think that's just in a few cases? Well, I think you would expect that to to uh, be the result of evolution. I mean, the vir the virus which can spread more easily is going to expand its population. Right, but why would they be matching? Why wouldn't uh, flu spread sexually more? Why wouldn't uh, HPV spread by coughing? Well, I don't know about HPV because HPV causes mouth uh, cancers. Yeah, and I guess and head you know, cancers, uh, sex so organ cancers too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A certain kind of epithelium uh, can get infected by HPV and that, that can induce cancer. I've just been actually uh, writing something about that. Yeah, I just wondered if you thought there's any matching again of tropism and method of spread. If not, not. I just wondered... Well, with HPV, we know it, it's transmitted sexually, and we know it's transmitted orally as well. So uh, those are two different methods, but they both imply uh, wet surfaces. And that seems to be the uh, common uh, feature of HPV infections. Okay. You know, another question, if I had a cell and I sucked out, you know, some of the contents of it, so we kept the membrane intact and all the surface receptors and everything. And a virus came along. Do you think it would complete its entry? Or do you think it would sense something's wrong and abort in the middle of the process? Well, it depends upon the mechanism. The viruses I know about attach and then sort of are automatically are triggered to, to inject their, their nucleic acid into the, into the host cell. And the ones that infect by mem joining the membranes, membrane fusions, the same thing would happen independently of the ability of the cell to reproduce the virus. I don't think viruses do much deciding. But cells, on the other hand, uh, can do that. And in fact, we know that virus infection turns on defenses by bacterial cells using CRISPRs. The CRISPR is a, a, an adaptive immune system to virus infection, because if a, if a cell gets infected by a virus and survives infection, it can take a piece of viral genome RNA or DNA, and insert it into its CRISPR system and produce a defensive RNA against it. But when it gets infected by the same virus the second time, the fact of infection actually activates the CRISPR to make more of the defensive proteins and RNAs it's capable of producing. So the cell certainly senses the, the virus infection and can respond to it. In this one case, which is actually not in bacteria, but in archaea, 
uh, is a, uh, a positive defense system. And it occurs because the proteins which the CRISPR system uses to attack the invading DNA uh, also bind to the CRISPR system and keep it from being transcribed too much. And when it gets infected, the uh, proteins bind the infecting DNA and they don't bind to the CRISPR system anymore, the DNA encoding it, and that gets expressed, transcribed at a higher rate. So that's, I think, a, a very good example of infection sensing and responding. Okay. And I think it would be surprising to most people that it's uh, uh, in, a, in a cell as small as a bacteria. So again, do you think if I had a cell that was, um, you know, it was a dud, you know, again, I sucked out the contents of it and try to use it as a trap for viruses. Do you think that they would, you know, certain kinds of viruses would fuse and enter and then find nobody home and now they're stuck? Yeah, that's been used as a strategy. Okay, very good. Another question I had is uh, do you, when, when a cell gets infected, do you think it's a one virus, one cell model? Or do you think that multiple viruses uh, in some cases can coordinate to infect a cell or are necessary to infect a cell? I think with some viruses, and I think influenza is an example, multiple viruses have to infect the cell. But there are lots of cases where we know that multiple viruses infect because, as I mentioned earlier, they can interact genetically and recombine and trade uh, segments of their genomes uh, if they're closely related. So we know that happens. And uh, some virus populations, I believe, not every virus has a complete genome. And so you, it requires multiple infections to get reproduction to get to be successful, viral reproduction, that is. Well, but also are there cases where a virus has infected a cell and it's like a, a dog guarding a bone? And it, you know, it's, I'm joking, but it growls at the other viruses or, you know, changes the cell somehow to prevent them from infecting it as well, preventing super infection? Uh, yes, I think there are examples of that where uh, uh, viruses can downregulate the uh, expression of receptors for other viruses, or they can produce proteins which might cover the receptors for other viruses. And there are viruses which also have CRISPR systems. So when they infect the cell, they can protect the cell from infection by other viruses. Huh. So besides downregulating receptors, what other, what other mechanisms can a virus protect the cell from other infections? Well, as I say, there are, they, some of them have their own CRISPR systems, so they can attack the nucleic acid of other viruses. And I think that that's an area of, of pretty interesting research for people to be able to do some experiments and figure out how that all, how it works out and what it means for the reproduction of each of the viruses. What huh. we see is that we see, we see all of these different kinds of interactions and systems in the genetics present just a, 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 an astonishing array of combinations. Yeah, no, definitely. Hmm. You said that some viruses may have to infect or a cell may have to be infected multiple times because not every virus has all the genetic information needed to properly infect. So do you think viruses essentially are swarms? You know, like if I look at like a, a colony of bees, you know, the workers, the drones, the queen, etc. they're all variations of phenotype, but they're all bee. Do you think that viral quasi-species make up, you know, a swarm and then when a cell population is infected, it's a swarm is necessary to properly infect so that you know, each cell will have various different quasi-species infecting it and that'll make it more effective that it would be infected? Well, you're taking me outside my area of real expertise. So I would only be conjecturing. But the fact that viruses are produced in such large numbers effectively creates an environment where uh, infection is, is 
almost inevitable or is inevitable. So in that sense, yes, they, they, they can go around in swarms. And we're seeing, I, I've been thinking about the, the fact that we're now reaching record numbers of cases of COVID in this country. And what we're seeing is the consequence of, of the amplification of a number of viruses. And as we have to deal with more, more viruses, even though we take certain countermeasures, more people get infected. That's one of the aspects of, of why the numbers are going up and why we may need to be uh, especially careful about uh, avoiding infection. Oh, because uh, so many people have had it that uh, there's just tons more viral material around. Right, and more people who, who are spreading it. Hmm, interesting. Like, interesting. At the, like at the White House. All right, yeah. Hmm. I mean, going further into, a little bit further into quasi-species, if, if I was able to make an isolate of a certain virus where it was just one... Um, Particle? No, it was just, a, you know, let's say it's an RNA virus, okay? And I, you know, mm -hmm. had a thousand base pairs. I'm just making this up. And I knew all the base pairs and I created an isolate of this virus. And all the base pairs are the same. Everyone was identical versus a wild type version where we'd probably have, you know, all kinds of variations of these thousand base pairs. And I infected two different mice. Do you think that the, uh, the isolate would be a lot less effective than the wild type? Because there's all these variants, these, again, probably these quasi species within it that maybe have uh, the ability to more overcome the mouse's cells? Well, on basic principles, I would say yes, because variability and diversity are generally far more effective biologically than uniqueness and, and uh, homogeneity. So, yeah, do you think that's what's happening? You know, when someone gets infected by a virus, it's not just the titer, it's not just the, the number of viruses, but also as you have more, you have more variation and therefore... You know, when a cell is infected, if it's infected by multiple viruses, there's there's a likelihood that someone will have that right base pair arrangement, you know, of the of their material where they can uh, they can co-opt the cell more effectively. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's knowable, and I think we'll have the data because people are spending a lot of time tracking COVID uh, RNA sequences through the pandemic, and in the end, we'll probably discover that either. The, it's a combination of, of sequences, which is what's being transmitted and spread, or it, it looks like it's single infections. So I think, I think we'll have epidemiological evidence of how the infection process goes on. Just because one process may be true of COVID doesn't mean it's true of all viruses. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Right, I was just wondering. Um, if, if a cell is uh, infected by a virus, do you think that the, um, the local microbiome that surrounds the cell would, would change? The reason uh, why I ask um, you know, I interviewed a lady that looked at like pancreas tumors and they found that the microbiome around the tumors was different from the rest of the pancreas. So I wondered if, uh, you know, an infected cell would then start to uh, have a different localized microbiome around it. I would expect so because you get uh, infections tend to make things like abscesses and, and uh, other kinds of uh, pathogenic structures. And they uh, also have would have antibodies and uh, anti-inflammatory agents and so forth. So it, that will definitely affect the mixture of or organisms that's present at the site of infection. Hmm, okay. And then um, how do you think a, uh, you know, our virome or a bacteria is like phagome, I guess I'll call it, or how do they become part of its immunity and, and do they? You know, like, like you said, bacteria can take viral material and and change itself, but do um, you think that again, like a bacteria's phagome, is what what comprises part of its immunity? 
its library of information to use to, you know, to defend itself? It can be. Uh, generally with viruses, I think having an, a, a copy integrated into the genome seems, the general rule seems to be that that provides protection against more infections, sometimes by very different mechanisms. But that seems to be the, the sort of general principle. And uh, sometimes it's by dedicated things like repressor proteins. But in other cases, it's, I don't know how, all the ways that that happens, but uh, the integrated viruses can make certain modifications to the cell as well. Do you think that like within our, you know, our bodies, for instance, um, how much crosstalk do you think there is between our virome, our microbiome, you know, the phages inside of us that affect the bacteria inside of us, you know, the fungi, et cetera, like all these different constituencies, do you think they're all kind of interacting directly or is there a, a chain of command and only certain parties interact with certain parties and, uh, you know, things are mediated through certain paths? Yes. In other words, all of the above. Oh, so you think like maybe our microbiome is directly communicating with our cells as well? Well, we know it is. Okay. Because we know that changes in the microbiome can, can influence our health and our mood. Hmm. Okay. So they're not just hangers on, in your opinion, could no, they're not just hangers on. They can, they can influence the way we think, the way we feel, what we can digest, active or passive we are. No, they influence us in many, many ways. And that's a whole active field of research these days. What about um, evolution? What, what role have you seen viruses play in evolution? Well, they, they play a number of roles. One role that's very obvious and wasn't expected uh, when it was first discovered is that they serve as vectors to carry information from one kind of organism to another. So viruses can pick up uh, information in one kind of cell and take it to another kind of cell. Uh, I think I mentioned about the uh, amoebal... Uh, I think you said the bacteria that affect amoebas? Uh, I'm, viruses think, that... I'm thinking of the giant viruses infecting amoeba. And oh, like Mimi virus and things like that? Yeah, and the bacteria that infect the same, can live in the same amoeba, and they can pick up sequences from the virus, these giant viruses, and the giant viruses can pick up sequences from the bacteria. And some of these bacteria can infect mammals, for example, and they might carry DNA from the virus to the mammal. Oh, it, it's, yeah, it's called the amoebal evolutionary melting pot. I think I mentioned that in, the, in an earlier uh, podcast as well. So that, that's hmm. one sort of thing that can, can happen. I like to refer to viruses as the R&D sector of evolution, the research and development sector, because there's a lot about viruses that it's quite mysterious. We don't know where much of the virus come, viral information comes from. I think it, it's a very high percentage, maybe close to uh, 99%, but of all of the sequences which are found only once in the databases are in viruses. Those are called orphans because they're alone and uh, ORF means open reading frame. And those sequences are a source of innovation for other organisms in, in evolution. And we see a lot of virus to host transfer to make new kinds of proteins. So that's a different role that they can play in evolution. They're springs of innovation, if you will. That's what I call them the R&D sector. But we don't know how those sequences arise. And in many cases, of course, we don't know what they do either, what the, they code for. So uh, I guess, you know, one of the last questions, in the beginning of life, do you think viruses came first or other, you know, or cells? Uh, 
what do you think this has been like in the beginning? And what do you think going forward the interactions will be like? Well, we're having a, a, a seminar series at the University of Chicago on the origins of life. And I think the origins of life is, is a, a big mystery that we haven't really solved because people like to focus on start with RNA. But to make RNA, you need precursors. And in particular, you need uh, high energy precursors. Um, and they have some idea about how they might do this thermodynamically. But the organisms that we know about that evolve all have cells which make nucleotide triphosphates and are precursors to RNA and DNA. So without the uh, metabolism, the biosynthesis, and the energy sources and the cell structure, uh, the nucleic acids by itself doesn't, won't evolve. People are trying very hard to, to work that out and uh, they may eventually do it, but I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't think we know yet what, what really came first. We, we have some ideas based on our, our current prejudices, which are very nucleic acid centered, but the other aspects of metabolism and membranes, those are extremely important as well. Hmm. Yeah, when you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, just say you mentioned, uh, you know, syncytin, you know, placental mammals, uh, the, the viruses that compose the, the placenta or code for it are different, but present in many different types of creatures. It seems like um, evolution has produced similar forms many times in many places over time. So why wouldn't it be the same for viruses? They probably didn't have one beginning, but I guess, I don't know. It's weird that you think everything had to have one beginning, but maybe it didn't. Maybe they were, life began many times in many places, somewhat simultaneously or close in time. Yeah, yeah. we don't know how old viruses are. And it's hard for me to, to understand how they could have evolved without having cells to infect so that they could reproduce. Uh, but the diversity of viruses and the diversity of sequences that they contain in their genomes is astonishing. And of course, there's every kind of virus you can imagine. Double-stranded DNA, single-stranded DNA, circular DNA, linear DNA, double-stranded RNA, single-stranded RNA, segmented RNA, everything is there. The, the only conclusion I can draw from it is that for some reason, there's a tremendous diversity and that's what turns out to be useful. And it's not necessarily useful to any particular virus or any particular organism, but it certainly is uh, useful to the biosphere as a whole because it gives it a lot of potential for going in different directions. And uh, certainly the history of evolution is repeated episodes of new organisms arising and new ecologies arising and doing things in a different way. And I'm afraid that with climate change, we're going to see that happening all over again. And it's not going to be very easy for us. Hmm. Yeah, it's a big, huge puzzle. A big puzzle. So, yeah. well, very good. Um, anything. Anything else I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I, I hope the message came through that I'm, I think oversimplification is, is a problem. Yeah, and I wasn't I, trying to oversimplify. I was trying to ask about no, different no, aspects. No, 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 no. I wasn't saying things. you were. I, I was just saying, I hope that I got that message across. Yeah, biology is unbelievably complex. It's amazing. Yeah, but we should expect it to be complicated and diverse. Well, very good, James. What's the best way for people to, uh, to find out more about your work? Visit my website, www.shapiro.bsd.uchicago.edu. Okay. They can access my papers there, and they can look at them. And I try and put as much of these things into my papers as I can. And uh, hopefully I'll write another uh, uh, book and uh, 
publish it that way too. Okay. Well, very good. All right. Well, James, thanks for coming on the call. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.